0: Welcome to episode three of Everything is Arbitrary. This is the podcast where I talk to you for an extended time about how everything could have turned out so differently were it not for some arbitrary decisions, moments, ideologies and beliefs. I'm Erin. I'm a writer living in Canberra in Australia. So on this episode, I'm going to be talking about the concept of generations and the generation wars. Um figuring out how that got started and why this conversation about millennials versus boomers or whatever is a massive waste of energy. Well, uh, at least partly. So a generation is a group of people born at a similar time who share some similar experiences and maybe characteristics. We'll look into that. Uh, You probably know this already, but I'm going to review how we roughly define different generations in popular culture. So first, uh, there's the greatest generation, who were born at around 1900 to 1924. The dates can vary quite widely in different definitions, and actually so can the names of generations. So people in this generation have also been called the GI generation or the World War II generation. The greatest generation is just such a hyperbolic and very value-based term. Like, in what sense are they great? Is everyone in that generation great? The phrase was coined by NBC journalist Tom Brokaw in his book by the same name, The Greatest Generation. So these are people who lived through the major crises of the Great Depression and World War II. They fought and died in the war and those who survived managed to bring forth huge amounts of growth into the mid-20th century. There is, you know, a lot of idealisation of this generation in in the stereotypes about it. And, of course, actual people probably won't live up to a title like Greatest Generation. That's, That's a lot to put on someone. The Silent Generation came next, born around 1925 to 1945. So born either in the interwar years or during World War II. They don't get talked about a lot, and it's also not clear where their name even comes from. Uh, There might be some connection with their policies of McCarthyism in the US, where it was so dangerous to say anything that could be construed as pro-communist that it was realistically easier just to say nothing, hence the silence. This is a really US-centric term, Um, fear of communism manifested itself differently in other parts of the Western world, Um, and obviously some states were were communist, so being loudly pro-communist wouldn't have been a huge issue. But anyway, uh, the silent generation has also been called the lucky few, because even though they were born in quite austere times, by the time they hit adulthood in the 1950s and 60s, They were really able to enjoy a lot more prosperity. The word few is also accurate. Um, Demographically speaking, in most places, it's a small generation because everyone was poor or going through the war. um, And so there wasn't a huge inclination to procreate. The stereotype of this generation is that it's a group of people who basically understood how horrible the world could get, either as direct witnesses of the Depression and World War II, or as people who had a good idea about what the impact of those events were from their parents. They understood how much more uncomfortable things could be. So they just kind of kept their head down, worked hard, tried not to waste things, didn't rock the boat, and lived according to the values their parents imparted on them. I should say explicitly here that I'm not sure how accurate these stereotypes of different generations really are. They kind of seem vague enough to feel broadly true, kind of like a horoscope. Baby boomers came next, born roughly between 1946 and 1964. I feel like this is one of the least arbitrarily defined generations because it is literally based on post-war demographic changes, but uh, looking, say, at the birth rate in Australia, The birth rate had actually started falling after 1961 Um, but then the UK actually experienced a two peak baby boom, one in 1946, the other in 1964, so whether or not you were actually born during a boom time depends on where you were as well. We hear about baby boomers in the media all the time and this generation these days holds the majority of wealth in many parts of the world. They're also probably quite self-aware of being part of a generation because they've been treated as a demographic for most of their lives. Um, I'll talk more about this later, but marketers have been very focused on advertising to them, especially in the 60s and 70s, and the media focused on analysing what on earth they were getting up to when they were young. They lived through multiple moral panics directed towards them, like around their alleged drug and sexual promiscuity. Nowadays, the fact that this big generation is going to get old and retire is a source of a different panic. So the worry is that their retirement might cause massive skills shortages in some industries. As well as they retire, governments will collect less income tax from them and will spend more on health costs and pensions and such on them. Baby boomers were stereotypically thought of as super progressive radicals back in their youth. Um, That stereotype is actually quite wrong. Uh, While the lives of baby boomers in the US particularly would have been influenced by hippie counterculture and the anti-war and civil rights movements, not every baby boomer was a hippie when they were young. Actually, only a minority were. Many boomers in the US actually supported the Vietnam War, Older boomers and younger members of the silent generation were more likely to support the war than their parents. And many wouldn't have been old enough to really get into um, hippie subcultures or countercultural movements by the end of the 70s. You know, if you are born in um, 1964, you would have been six by the end of the decade. Nowadays, the boomer stereotype paints them as ultra-conservative. They apparently use phrases like... Political correctness gone mad. Uh, They think young people are overly sensitive, can't take a joke, whatever. Um, They're stereotypically less likely to be concerned about environmental issues like climate change, um, obsessed with wealth and property accumulation, somewhat racist, sexist, homophobic, and so on. There is evidence that older voters at the moment are more likely to tend towards conservatism, Um, but we should also remember that many members of this generation are going to be greatly affected by climate change, or are poor, or who have always been more likely to be on the receiving end of racism, sexism, and and homophobia than actual perpetrators of it. So, after the baby boomers, you have Generation X, born roughly between 1965 to 1979. They were really maligned back in their day, not dissimilar to how boomers were maligned back in theirs, and how millennials are maligned now. They were more likely to grow up in two-income households or households where their mother worked, um, whether they were the child of a single parent or in a nuclear family. Of course, this assumes the normalcy of middle-class people. Um, Obviously lower-income mothers have always worked. Lots of Generation X's got the label latchkey kid, meaning that they had their own house key and were expected to use it to enter their house when they came home from school, Um, a phenomenon that also caused some degree of moral panic. They were also more likely to be children of divorce since divorce became more accessible over their lifetimes in many countries. They were also sometimes called the MTV generation and were stereotyped as lazy slackers who loved grunge music, which older people didn't seem to understand. Um, Now that they've hit adulthood, they barely rate a mention in the press. No one seems too worried about them as a whole. Millennials come after Gen X, uh, people born after 1980. The end date seems a bit rubbery, but basically until the mid-90s. This is the generation I'm technically in. We were referred to as Gen Y for a bit, but then the millennial label caught on, named for the fact that we grew up at the time of the new millennium. A lot of our employment prospects and finances have been impacted by austerity politics and the global financial crisis. At the same time, the generation is pretty well educated, and in the US they've fallen into massive amounts of debt to be so. The millennial stereotype is basically all over the place and a bit contradictory. So, for example, Brett Easton Ellis criticised millennials for Vanity Fair, saying that they have an insistent that they are right despite the overwhelming proof that suggests they are not. To be fair, he did admit that this was a massive generalisation. But at the same time, millennials also get critique for being too cautious. Um, like in a Washington Post article that read... Millennials have been called the most cautious generation, the first to grow up with car seats and bike helmets. The first not allowed to walk to school or go to the playground alone. But along with being too cautious, according to an article in the Irish Independent, they're also too confident. So many of the millennials in today's workforce have more confidence than they do competence. This argument is related to the monologue about how we're all entitled, and mistakenly think we're great at everything because we got participation trophies at school or something. Quick aside though, one of my moments of awakening as a person who realizes the arbitrariness of all things was when I found out that anyone can just go down to a trophy supply store and buy a trophy. So even trophies that I earned from actually coming first place or whatever felt fairly meaningless to me anyway. I guess that probably isn't a representative story. Well, one of the other major stereotypes about millennials is that we're imagined to be very young. The Wall Street Journal discouraged using the millennial label a couple of years ago in its guidance to writers because writers don't use the term very precisely. I don't read the Wall Street Journal, so I don't know if they're still refraining from using it, but they called millennial a snotty term and criticized it as meaningless. According to their advice, what we usually mean is young people, so we probably should just say that. And they're right, because by conflating millennials with young people, they forget that actually the oldest millennials will be turning 40 this year. Which is kind of a wild thought, but it's only strange because the term's been used so inaccurately for so long. But yeah, there are millennials who are shaping the economy, millennials who are in charge of bustling households, who are in charge of staff, who are educating another generation of young people. And so it's sort of difficult to apply any meaningful stereotype to all people aged around 24 to 40. Generation Z comes next, born from around the mid-90s to who knows when, question mark. A baby being born today would likely not be considered Generation Z. Um, I've heard the term Generation Alpha be applied when talking about the youngest living generation, but who knows. Uh, It's not very well defined, Um, and both generations, both Zed and Alpha, will probably experience a name change at some point. I'd be quite surprised if in 10 years we'll we'll be still using that term, Generation Zed. There's been two main strands of discussion when it comes to this generation. The first is that they're digital native, so they're quite likely not to just have been born in a house with a computer, but with an internet connection. Their first phone probably would have been a smartphone, this kind of thing. There's a moral panic that comes with that because of concerns about how the pervasiveness of technology will impact their development, or alternatively, how they might miss out on opportunities later in life if they aren't like awesome coders or something. So there's a push and pull around technology, both as something that will be vital to them, but also perhaps will somehow rewire their brains to make them a different species to the rest of us. The second stereotype is that they're woke, basically. They care about social issues, they know all about social justice, and they'll eradicate discrimination. So, I don't know. I guess we'll see. You also have the category of zennial. I'm not sure if that's actually how you pronounce it. So that's another thing. People who are too old to identify as millennial, but too young to see themselves as Gen X, so people born between the late 70s and early 80s um, would be in this category. They've also been called the Oregon Trail Generation after that video game. It's been described as people who had an analogue childhood and a digital adulthood. To me, it makes total sense that some people won't identify with the generation label they've been assigned, especially if you're on a cusp and can argue that you're not representative of an arbitrary category on that basis. But I think to invent new cusp labels is kind of to miss the point. So I was born right in the middle of the millennial generation, and I don't personally see myself in the stereotypes around the label. I don't see myself as a stereotype because nobody is a stereotype. Um, Plus, the millennial stereotype is pretty unflattering. There's no real incentive for me to pretend that I fit it. Unlike, say, the greatest generation, where there's good incentives to pretend that you are a total hero, obviously. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given the name and purpose of this podcast, I think these generation categories are very arbitrary and kind of weird. A good proportion of the stereotypes seem to just come from older folks hating on younger ones and vice versa. As the BBC points out, the critiques millennials get nowadays is very similar to the ones that Aristotle levelled on young people back in his day in ancient Greece. Here's one Aristotle quote. They think they know everything and are always sure about it. And another, young people are high-minded because they have not yet been humbled by life, nor have they experienced the force of circumstances. So hating on young people isn't new. Doing it in a systemic way through concepts like generation doesn't make it science either. So where does the conversation about generations even come from? So the concept of generation actually dates back pretty far. Uh, Looking at the Oxford English Dictionary, you have references to the sense that a generation constitutes all of the people born and living at about the same time. Um, regarded collectively, that kind of ha- is happening from the medieval period. Yet yeah, we find that more often when people historically spoke about generations, they meant familial generations. So children are one generation, their parents are another, grandparents are another, great-grandparents are yet another, etc. As far as I can work out, we didn't largely think of generations as large groups of people with shared character traits until the 1800s or maybe a bit earlier. This is a time when, in Europe particularly, you're starting to see Enlightenment values, uh, revolutions of the 1700s, and industrialization making a huge social impact. And you've got ideas like evolution and Marxism. This is the century where slavery was legally abolished um, in many parts of the world. You're seeing rapid changes in the way people live, work, understand their rights. So you've got a fairly new sense at this time that an individual is part of a large, complex society. So they're not just part of their immediate locality. And you also get the sense here that change is not just possible, but natural. And that gives way to the impression that people change over time too. And they change as part of these social developments. In the early 1800s, philosopher Auguste Comte talks about progress in society. He argues that it's important that we have both conservative and innovative forces. So we need the stability of long lifespans and knowledge transmission from older generations to younger ones through education, traditions and rituals and so on. But if the world stays the same, by definition, it won't get better. So sometimes sustaining practices will go too far and younger people get trapped into thinking that the ways of the generations before them are the only ways of doing things. In this sense Comte would consider the death of an older generation a necessary part of social progression, um, and the rate of death would then likely be responsible for the tempo of change – it's too rapid if generations are short, and it's too sluggish if people were to live forever. I'll point out here that the assumption of progress over time is a very Western capitalistic idea and one that doesn't really play out in reality. So we could look for example at the Roman Empire, (laughs) there they have postal systems, aqueducts, sanitation systems, and so on. Most of these technologies were developed from similar technologies in other ancient cultures, so they weren't always novel either. But then after the fall of the Roman Empire, you get the Middle Ages, where this technology isn't readily available. It took a very long time for sanitation in Europe to get back up to Roman standards. Uh, The Romans had flush toilets, but in medieval times in Europe, um, people were using pits on the ground with, like, wooden seats on them. So it's not true that life gets successively better generation after generation. And yet we do find this notion in post-Enlightenment times, the idea that each generation should expect a better life than the one before it is is something that we should question, and actually it's something that we are questioning right now. Um, we can see that things aren't necessarily progressing, at least not in any obvious way. So we're facing the threat of climate change, we've got the accumulation of waste and the degradation of the environment, high global rates of youth unemployment and growing inequalities that make it difficult for young people to own assets compared with their parents. These things make it hard to say that each generation experiences progress as it moves from the last. But anyway, in the 1950s, we then get German sociologist Karl Mannheim arguing explicitly that people are so influenced by their historical conditions, the events they bear witness to, the technologies they use, that it's actually meaningful to lump them together analytically as a generation. He says that they share a common location in the social and historical process, which limits them to a specific range of potential experience, predisposing them for a certain characteristic mode of thought and experience. That said, Uh, You wouldn't be considered part of a generation unless you had a feeling of unity or shared experience among other people of a similar age to you. This feeling of identification with others of the same age group happens because a big event might have occurred as you were all reaching maturity. So at an age where you're old enough to remember the event and understand it, but you're young enough for it to have an effect on your developing worldview. Just being alive at the time isn't enough. You have to be within a certain window of your development. Mannheim draws on in saying that part of what makes someone consciously part of a generation also has to do with that tempo of change. So rate of social change has to be sufficiently fast enough for you to feel a break with the generations before you. And the rate of change might be influenced by that huge event itself. So you could argue, for example, that bearing witness to the Great Depression as you were reaching adulthood would fundamentally impact your worldview on wealth, inequality, the waste and debauchery of the roaring 20s, and that all of this may cause a rift in worldviews between you and your parents, who might have known greater abundance in their adulthood. And indeed, longitudinal studies based in California of people who came of age in the Great Depression, find that the hardships they endured meant that they tended to price stability and family, and also that their hard work and resourcefulness in contributing to their family's income by working and taking on household responsibilities rather earlier than average, tended to be rewarded as economic conditions improved over their lifetimes. So it's like saying that it's meaningful to say, yes, this is a generation of people. That's distinct from previous generations. An interesting point, though, is that Mannheim's account of generations is at odds with how we casually talk about generations. So, when we refer to generations, it's under the assumption that everyone alive today is part of a distinct generation with distinct character traits, just like how everyone has a star sign. Yet, Mannheim would argue that lots of people actually wouldn't be part of a generation at all because they never had that dramatic shared experience as a key point in their lives. Another major theory of generations comes from the 90s, from US sociologists William Strauss and Neil Howe. They call it the Strauss-Howe generational theory. Their focus is very much on the US. And under this theory, society moves in big circles between the time of a crisis, a post-crisis high, an unravelling, and a new crisis. Different generations play different roles in navigating society through these circles. They basically argue that there are four main archetypes that can characterize a generation formed by the movement of history, how these generations of people are raised, how confident they are, whether they're prepared to take risks, and how invested they are in social change. The first archetype is the prophet. So that's a generation of people who came of age at a time where society is optimistic about making positive change, usually after a huge crisis, um, post-World War II being a good example. Members of profit generations tend to be indulged as children, and they can be a bit self-obsessed, but are also righteous crusaders for a better world. Baby boomers supposedly fit this category. Then there's the nomad, so the generation of people who came of age While the prophets have made the world into a better place, or at least tried to, as kids they're not necessarily paid much attention, they tend to grow up feeling alienated, but as adults they're pragmatic and will likely be the middle-aged leaders of a crisis, and will prove to be up for the job, Um, and this is meant to describe Generation X. Then there's the hero generation. They come of age at a time of social unravelling, So after the post-crisis high, society will eventually start to get chaotic again, prioritising values like individualism, self-reliance and pragmatism, and the hero generation bears some of the fallout of this decreasing emphasis on social cohesion. They tend to be fairly well protected as children, though. A crisis emerges as the hero generation comes of age, and they're optimistic and energetic in its face. When they grow up, they're overconfident, and by the time they're elders, they'll be attacked by new prophets looking to overhaul the system for the sake of achieving a new post-crisis high. The greatest generation are supposedly heroes, and apparently so are millennials, so I don't know, stay tuned for that. And the last archetype is the artist generation. They're born during a crisis and are overprotected by their parents, who are preoccupied with this crisis. They're socialised to keep their head down, to not make waves, to not cause themselves any additional problems, or get themselves in danger, but they grow up into thoughtful, methodical people. So yep, that's the silent generation, and also apparently generation Z. Like the attributes that correspond with star signs, this is both compelling and vague, there's no empirical evidence to back it up, and you can make of it what you will. It is important to mention, though, because while you might not have heard of this theory before, it actually does inform the way we talk about generations in popular culture and the story we tell ourselves about social progress and change and what roles different generations make in that process. The baby boomers were the first generation that sociologists clearly defined and talked about. And the reason is quantitative. So after World War II ended, people obviously were more enthusiastic about sex and procreation, and there was a huge increase in the birth rate. The first references to this generation listed in the Oxford English Dictionary are from media articles. So one's from 1963 in the Salt Lake Tribune. Saying that the generation is partly to blame for chairs wearing out too quickly. Um, this is the quote Statistics show that long hours of television viewing put an extra strain on chairs, causing upholstered seating pieces to wear out three to four times faster than in the days before television and the baby boomers. So, I, I don't know. I just find this hilarious given that younger generations are now being blamed for similar kinds of phenomena. But they clearly didn't cause. I mean, baby boomers didn't invent the concept of television or of sitting, and actually this problem is pretty trivial in the scheme of things, like, oh no, you have to reupholster your couch slightly more often. Anyway, there are references to other generations before then. So, for example, an article from a newspaper in Ohio referred to the automobile generation in 1921 A newspaper in Philadelphia referred to the TV generation in 1958, but these aren't precisely defined who is and isn't included in these generations. So unlike the term baby boomer, which is literally defined as someone born during the baby boom, which has fairly clear start and end dates. The term baby boomers was soon embraced by advertising companies because it was a great way to see the income-generating potential of appealing to this giant group of young people. So whereas before, marketing would tend to be directed at adults, the people who have actual money, young people at this time still had a lot of influence, which made them really great consumers. Our understanding of generations today comes from all this sociological theory that I've talked about. Observations and demographic changes, which did definitely happen in non-arbitrary ways, um, as well as interest in making money off of Baby Boomers, which was the biggest living generation at the time. There's also a fair bit of interest in pop psychology and pop sociology. So the concept of generation seems to still be used a lot in managerial type advice and content, like tips, how to engage a millennial workforce, or what have you. Although... You have to note that people who provide advice and courses on this topic do have a vested interest in making you think that millennials are somehow very different people to earlier generations. Otherwise, you wouldn't spend money on, on these like products and seminars. As well, conversations about generations seems very much filled by tension between them. So old people complaining about young people and vice versa. And this tension isn't anything particularly new. I tend to agree with Mannheim that it doesn't always make sense to group people together just because they're born in a certain time period. They only really unify if and when some massive event compels them to and causes such a change that it's hard not to see them as somehow separate from preceding generations. So let's take millennials. I don't think there's one massive event that even unites us as a generation. I mean, you might say 9-11, but that's a very US-centric suggestion. And although I remember the event fairly well, my life wasn't fundamentally changed by it in the same way that those, say, coming of the age during the Great Depression, were shaped by that experience. They're just not comparable things. Plus, younger millennials might not have understood what was going on or even remember it at all. Another suggestion about a generation-defining event would be the availability of the internet. But that's not one event. Different people of my generation got internet access at different times in their life, depending on their class, their geographic location. As well, Web 1.0 was a very different beast to Web 2.0. Um, that was back in the days when if you wanted to create online content, you'd have to know HTML and build your own website, which was considered a fairly niche interest at the time. I remember the internet through most of the 2000s being more similar to reading a magazine or saying on a site like Life Journal, more similar to writing a diary or something rather than the strange kind of beast that it's become. The internet's now a far more pervasive tool that you can carry around with you, and you can see images and livestream videos which would have taken years to download back in the days of dial-up. So, I don't know, you don't have to agree with me, but I'd actually argue that there's no such thing as a millennial as a meaningful category of person. Which makes the idea of blaming them for the demise of the napkin industry, or maligning them for not owning can openers, and yes, you can find articles to this effect, Kind of funny. Like you may as well be blaming ghosts or theta waves or something. There are ways uh, that generations can be more useful to analyse. The first is the notion of a cohort. So you're rather loosely defining your cohort as people who have experienced similar world events to you at similar ages. So the fact that younger people have never known a world without the internet would shape their life experience. And it is interesting to ask how. But although our perspective on world events unites us with other members of our cohorts, it won't necessarily prescribe certain character traits, opportunities, or views. Another useful way to look at generations as a concept is to understand kinship. Your generation likely informs your role in your family and along with other factors will influence how much power you have at home and how this power translates outside the home, what your responsibilities are, what your rights are. Our relationships with people in our families of the same generations, like siblings and cousins, for example, will be some of the most powerful and enduring in our lives. So we share memories, we occupy a similar role in our family dynamics, we'll likely have similar lifespans. So that would be a very fruitful way to think about generations too. And more so I think than listing vague made up traits of people based on the time span they were born into. So in saying all this, I think the generation wars playing out through the media are obviously manufactured, and they're mostly not useful because the conversation resorts to huge generalizations and nobody seems to use the generation terms consistently or precisely. I've talked about this already with the term millennial and how the assumption seems to be that we're all like 22 or something. There's another newer example, though, and this is in the phrase OK Boomer, which has been <laughs> bizarrely controversial. Um, actually, one of the reasons why I like encouraging people to say how everything is arbitrary is because it helps you uh, maybe take these sorts of phrases less personally. So like every suspicious thing in the modern world, the phrase OK Boomer seems to have originated on 4chan. That was in around 2015, but now it seems to have been popularized on TikTok OK Boomer is said in response to things people say that are kind of eye and spoken by someone who appears to be older, or maybe they're just older in spirit. It's mostly an online phrase, although there's tons of offline references too, including in New Zealand Parliament. And as the ABC reports, it's a response to what's perceived to be some older people's sense of entitlement, outdated ways of thinking, or condescending attitudes towards younger generations. You definitely don't have to be a baby boomer to be on the receiving end of this phrase, which in itself tells you something about the arbitrariness when it comes to age and generational stereotyping. So there's a sense of political frustration with climate change deniers, with people who don't see rising income inequality as an issue, and with people who are just mystified by young people's employment rates. They can't understand why they just can't just go to a workplace and ask for a job. OK Boomer is really expressed in reaction to conservative, authoritarian, pick-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of worldviews, as well as towards people who don't seem to have very much empathy for others, especially younger people. So to be clear, this is a political fight between progressives and conservatives. I'm sure there's a generation-based correlation between these groups, but the word boomer is a red herring in trying to understand what someone means when they use this phrase. It shouldn't be taken seriously as an ageist remark, but the issue with it is that it ignores how people can be united across generational lines for the purpose of similar political goals. And that's the issue with generation analysis in general. It's such a narrow way of analysing people and their lives. There's tons of factors that shape our opinions, attitudes, personalities, the opportunities we have, and so on. So, for instance, in Australia, baby boomers do collectively hold most of the nation's wealth, but that doesn't mean that they're all rich land barons. Baby boomers who are women are also disproportionately affected by poverty. After a lifetime of wage inequality, inequalities in the accumulation of superannuation, um, and ageism in the workforce... If we limit our worldview to generation gaps, it's harder to see that reality. And so, in that sense, talking about generations can obfuscate the truth as well as illuminate it. Another problem with talking about generations using massive stereotypes is that it's not just that it creates arbitrary divisions. It also glosses over very important distinctions within groups of people of a similar age. As Kimberly Quick writes for the Century Foundation, characteristics that are common to only a portion of the group often slips over in people's minds to represent the entire cohort. She calls this tendency label creep and writes, label creep can have some unfortunate effects in that it can establish stereotypes that are not representative. For example, while millennials are the most educated, this obscures the fact that two-thirds of millennials didn't go to college. So this is in the U.S., The problem she identifies with simply saying that millennials are educated, for instance, is that for the many who aren't, not having a bachelor's degree can make finding a job more difficult now than it would have been in the past where there were heaps of jobs available for people who completed high school or less. When you're in an educated cohort, it's a huge disadvantage to not be super educated. But this is a disadvantage people might not think needs addressing because of the stereotype that millennials are well educated. So why worry about it? In another example, Quick writes about the fact that in the US, millennials are a much more racially diverse generation than previous ones. The stereotype that follows from that is that millennials are less racist and less likely to discriminate against others on the basis of their identities. But, as she points out, while this is true that surveys of millennials show them to be more progressive than their parents, when you break down the results, you actually find considerable variations in views. So for example, as she writes, when researchers isolate the survey responses of white American millennials, little difference exists between their responses and those of their parents. So millennials, white millennials at least, might not in fact be more tolerant. They might just be outnumbered. But the issue is that the intolerance is hidden by the stereotype that millennials are diverse and relatively woke. Another problem is that conversations about generations tends to centre the Western world, and the US in particular. When we talk about events that have affected millennials, we might talk about the difficulty say of venturing into the job market during the financial crisis. But people in the same age group in the Middle East might more readily think of phenomena like ongoing wars, or the Arab Spring, which are very different experiences or let's say you take people reaching adulthood in 1989 in the Western world, might point to the fall of the Berlin Wall as a massive world event. But those in Eastern Europe would also look at the wave of revolutions in places like the Czech Republic, Poland and Hungary as just as huge. Meanwhile, those coming of age in China at that point might instead look to Tiananmen Square and the ongoing student protests in the year before. Brazilians might point to the fact that 1989 marked the first time in 30 years that a presidential election was held and was the start of an era of re-democratization after military leadership. In South Africa, 1989 was when apartheid began to be dismantled. As well, in 1989, you have ongoing tensions in the Gulf. Um, 1989 is the year before the Gulf War began and the year after the Iran-Iraq War ended. So in the same time period, you have lots of different things going on and lots of different potential defining events. Or even if you think of the baby boomers, so people born post-war, while we find that most of the world did experience a demographic shift, so a baby boom, in some places the birth rate didn't increase. The baby boom was weak or absent through a lot of Eastern and Southern Europe, for instance, Globally, there's so much going on at any time that what it means to be in a certain age group is clearly contingent on geography as much as generation. So, the idea of ascribing traits to a whole group of people with such diverse experiences is obviously going to be limited. As I say all this um, at the same time, I have to admit that I sometimes do get caught up in the generation wars. So, my parents were both born after the baby boom ended i don't really have super close relationships with any representative baby boomer um not that there's any such thing as a representative baby boomer but i'm in a position where it's easy to stereotype them in my mind and blame them and their obsession with property accumulation as a reason why i can't afford a house or what have you And I do get put up too when millennials are condemned in the media for really bizarre stuff like destroying the tuna industry. But ultimately, I think this intergenerational tension is based on really faulty assumptions and that it's probably better for people to unite across age groups when we strive for equality. Try not to feed the beast or get too caught up in stereotyping others on the basis of what year they were born, yeah? So that was Everything is Arbitrary. Check out show notes, references, social media, and so forth by visiting everythingisarbitrary.com. If you'd like to nominate yourself or someone else as a future guest of the show because you're across the arbitrariness of some phenomenon or concept or thing, you can get in touch through the website too. Thank you.